0: I'm Eileen Dunn and this is the God slot Yesterday was Thanksgiving Day in the US and last weekend in Northern Virginia, a partnership project between the McLean Islamic Centre and Temple Rodef Shalom saw members of the two congregations dining together with the Muslim host and the Temple's rabbi, both offering up prayers for peace in the Middle East. This weekend, six new cardinals, nominated by Pope Benedict on October the twenty-fourth will be appointed at a new consistory in the Vatican. And on Tuesday last, Church of England members rejected a direct plea from the man who will be the next Archbishop of Canterbury to approve the appointment of women bishops in a move which once again threatens to split Anglicans. The current incumbent, Dr Rowan Williams, who was also in favour of women bishops, accused his Church of England of being willfully blind to the attitudes of modern British society. He will resign from his position as Archbishop of Canterbury at the end of this year and has said that he wants to spend his last months on the job speaking his mind. To that end, he's published a book, Faith in the Public Square. And to kill two birds with one stone, we asked one of our most regular contributors from last season, student and Irish Catholic columnist Ben Conroy, to review that book for us. What would you say this book is about, Ben?
1: The book itself is a edited collection of lectures that uh, Ron Williams delivered. So it deals with kind of a huge variety of issues from you're looking at kind of Islam's relationship with the secular state, care for the environment, uh, the financial crisis is a huge amount about that. And it's just kind of weighing in on different ways in which faith and for, particularly for Ron Williams Christianity can play a role in a lot of these big questions that we're dealing with. It's not an easy read. It's not. It's not a book of sound bites. It is at times. You know, you're having to look at the page and you're thinking, "What exactly did he mean by that last paragraph?" And reading it over it again and again. But on one level, you know, sh- why should it be a book of sound bites? Uh, I suppose the book is for politicians. It's for businessmen. It's for artists. Uh, it's for anyone who could sit down and actually say and grapple with the ideas and actually allow themselves to be challenged by what uh, Ron Williams is saying. The man, Ron Williams, I've always said, is kind of the our world's equivalent of Harry Pot- the Harry Potter series' Albus Dumbledore. Um, and that's why I really like him, in that he has this kind of professorial demeanor but also has this real intellectual steel underneath that
0: too much of an intellectual perhaps yeah for some? No,
1: I, I think i think some you know that definitely that's been people have said you know well, what does he actually mean by this and is he is he very abstract but this book is actually very concrete in that it's it's tough to go through but it's actually dealing very much with with concrete practicalities like how do you have a banking system that is fair how do you have a banking system that works for the common good you know what are human rights what do they mean Now, I actually became a fan of Rowan Williams when I read a lecture of his called Most Common Ways in Which Religion is Misunderstood. But in his chapter on atheism in this book, what he actually says is early Christians were considered atheists by the Roman Empire because they didn't adhere to the belief that the emperor was the divinity. And his point is that if you look at atheism and you look at other faiths, and you look at what do they actually disbelieve in. So what God does Richard Dawkins not believe in? You know, Richard Dawkins talks about the God of the Bible as being a monster, as being this totalitarian dictator. And Rowan Williams' point is more or less, I don't believe in that God either, and <laughs> nor should you. And so if you actually look at what Richard Dawkins, the God that Richard Dawkins doesn't believe in, that can tell us a lot about what is our understanding of God and what is is it a good understanding? And should we be rejecting the kind of God that Richard Dawkins rejects?
0: So he sees it as a challenge to Christians.
1: Absolutely. It's not kind of let's combat Dawkins, let's 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 you know fight off his arguments. It's let's listen to him and let's listen to Muslims and let's listen to Jews and Buddhists and let's listen to what they disbelieve about Christianity and figure out, should we be believing in it either? And if so, let's, let's, let's say that. And if not, can we, can we learn from other faiths? So he almost turns the thing on its head.
0: Now, as you say, this is com- it's a series of lectures that he has given over the years, and it's interesting to look at the timeline. One of his big themes is
1: secularism. Mm-hmm.
0: How does he deal with secularism in general? Because it's a big theme running across many of these. Lectures. It is. Both
1: of them are actually Islam and secularism. He's grappling with the two of them, and they're often the way they seem to contradict each other. Uh, you know can you can with growing muslim populations in europe can you have a society with a lot of muslims in it and that is also a secular society and what kind of secularism do you want and that kind of question is hugely run through the book where he distinguishes between two different kinds of secularism you have your programmatic secularism on one hand and that he kind of says france might be a model of that the kind of you cannot have you can't display religious symbols. It's actually pushing religion very actively out of the public square and out of uh, shaping arguments. That's one form of secularism, and there's another which is procedural secularism, which he talks about, which is more or less a level playing field. So, you allow all voices to be heard. It creates what he calls a, a loud, argumentative, noisy public square where you have you have Christians, atheists, agnostics, Muslims jews people of all faiths and none very actively contributing to a big loud raucous debate um, about what is best for all of us what does each faith bring to the public square what is unique about them listen to that allow them to be that and then the conclusions you draw uh, williams argues are going to be much much richer than if you try and push all those voices out and say well you know your faith you know you're very entitled to practice your faith but it's only a private matter williams's argument is that Authenticated faith is more about what you do than what you believe.
0: So that brings us on then to the whole question of tolerance and how does he deal with that?
1: There's been a huge debate uh, about what exactly tolerance means kind of across the Western world recently. And, you know, should you be tolerant of intolerant people? And what he says in the book is that more or less, yes, you should because if you don't allow people of all opinions to contribute, you're going to just leave them feeling disenfranchised. And he uses the example of kind of Islam again. And if you're shutting kind of a lot of uh, Islamic thought out of public debate because it's considered to be incompatible with Western democracy, you're making that kind of people who believe in that kind of thought uh, feel more and more isolated, which tends to foster extremism, which tends to end badly. Another theme running through the whole uh, book is that Challenge is a good thing. If your beliefs don't stand up to challenge, they're not worth holding. Ron Williams has often been accused of being a better theologian than he is an administrator, which I'd say is very true. And yet, if more people took this theology on board, this theology of differing without hating, of being unafraid to actually argue, while still, you know, argue in the, and passionately argue, but in the, the interest of the common good, in the interest of what we all hold together. I think if more of the Anglican Communion had actually kind of taken that on board, things might not be as fractious as they are today.
0: Now, as he retires, the tablet is talking about a superhuman Anglican (laughs) is required to be the next And We've just had the announcement that the Bishop of Durham, Justin Welby, is going to be the next Archbishop of Canterbury. What are the challenges facing him?
1: I suppose the the biggest one would just be the divisions within the Anglican Communion. Um, And again, the the precise issues, such as uh, gay rights, women's ordination, that have actually been probably the low points of Williams's uh, stewardship of, of of the Anglican Communion, and that they've you know resolutions to those haven't been found. There are definitely issues that are still there, very much to be addressed. I think Justin Welby is going to have to find some way of doing that. His uh, his resume, a very 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 interesting guy, a former oil executive who, after a tragedy, his daughter dying in a car accident, um, found a late vocation to the priesthood he's only been a bishop for a year and he's now archbishop of canterbury like it's a, when they talk about meteoric rises they don't come much more meteoric than this um he also in his time uh, was a crisis negotiator in Africa among separatists in the swamps of the Niger Delta and uh, also worked with Islamists in northern Nigeria. So I think that experience is, is As going to be very, very useful in the Anglican communion, let's put it that way. And uh, finally,
0: do you think he and do you think others should read this Rowan Williams book at Christmas?
1: Oh, oh absolutely. Um, I think Justin Welby and Rowan Williams seem to have a huge amount of time for each other. I think, that there's a poverty of discourse of discussion in our public square in the west in general and that there are so many things are reduced to sound bites so many things are glossed over so many things you'd never really get much far below the surface and i think people who take the time to engage with it i think it would give them a totally different way of looking at a lot of these issues and i think in the long run that would make public debate and it would make all our societies much more interesting place and hopefully a better place too.
0: Ben Conroy thank you. That book by Rowan Williams Faith in the Public Square is published by Bloomsbury Father Ryan McAleer was ordained on the 1st of July this year and was recently appointed to Dungannon Parish. At the age of 25 he's Ireland's youngest priest and he spoke to Rona Tarrant about the challenges he faces in his new life.
2: You can imagine as as we all can imagine the sort of scenarios the sort of situations that that a priest obviously comes across in his daily exp- in his daily life in his daily routine and i'm coming in sort of fresh from seminary um you know having come in from school and you know with with really little or no experience as to what exactly you know i might come across and you know i've done but I, it must be said i mean part of the the seminary program now very different to years ago is that Pastoral experience, pastoral formation, working with people in, in a, a whole spectrum of of sort of pastoral situations and with different people—that's very much part of the program every single year and every week, really, of of seminary formation. So from from the get go, you know, when I was eighteen in the seminary, I was working with you know a whole range, whether it was elderly in nursing homes visiting them once a week whether it was working with young people scouts with those maybe with you know maybe disabled people there was a whole range of things that I've done across my seven years in seminary that you know is an attempt obviously to prepare the you know the, the, the priest to when he comes across these in his ministry but of course you know nothing is going to ever prepare you really for i suppose the day-to-day reality and that's you know that, that that's is on my mind as i start as I start now as a new priest in a new parish, you know we're we're facing a sort of uncertain future in many respects for the Church in Ireland, and you know with with falling numbers of priests and you know all the the other sort of maybe issues that could be could be named that you know the, the the challenges that the church is facing in these in these times well that's all part of of my future because i've committed myself now fully to the institutional church and to you know working in in a full time full minute you know way with the church so yeah i suppose my nervousness or if there are any um i suppose it's tied up with with the future of the church really and where i fit into that and what what i can do to to help that you know um there's a sort of more personal aspects. I mean, you know, obviously celibacy. I mean, I, I don't really fully appreciate perhaps uh, you know celibacy as well. In so far as what exactly might might be the challenge of it in the future. In so far as you know, I suppose that you know we, we're told that you know there's there's at various parts, various aspects of your life, various times in your life, there are you know uh, sort of different aspects of celibacy that that sort of. Um, you know, come home to you in a really uh, real way. Um, you know, and, and, and sort of. So there's there's aspects as as well, and on a sort of a personal level that you know, m- one might be uh, you know I might be nervous about, but the real dominant feeling at the moment is, is real excitement um, and real sort of you know encouragement that I, that I've been getting is just yeah that excitement uh, for starting out in, in this new life in this this ministry.
3: Do you think that there's a return to a more conservative attitude with your generation compared to the generations
2: then that went before you? I don't like to use those sort of labels of, of conservative or, or anything else, to be quite honest. Especially, you know, when it comes to the church. I mean, the church has discipline; it has it's teachings, and and so we we adhere to them as best we can, and we 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 have the faith and the trust in in what the church teaches. And you know, it's it's easy for somebody so young to be so eager and enthusiastic about something. Um, you know, because, you know, at, at my age, at my stage, having only started out, I've only started out in this commitment, but I would say that seminarians, younger priests, my generation, there's no uh, desire to to sort of change those, you know, the discipline of celibacy or uh, many other things that maybe older priests would have had. There's a certain vintage of priests that, you know, went through a time in the church and in the world when there was a great expectation of change, and so... Perhaps there were, there were many men went into this the seminary or went to the priesthood expecting that that celibacy might you know might not be a sort of a lifetime commitment and and so that it was something that was going to change very soon um and that just didn't seem that didn't happen obviously
0: Father Ryan McAleer talking to Rona Tarrant are you telling me nobody remembers anything
3: he said the church. Put them in an ambulance.
0: They just got out of hand. You can
4: only yourself.
3: Did you tell them? You're worried about the crack.
0: That's a clip from the trailer of What Richard Did, Lenny Abrahamson's cinematic reimagining of a novel that was in turn a fictionalisation of factual events that took place in Dublin in August 2000. Producer Jerry McArdle was very impressed with this film, but Barry Macmillan, lecturer in religious studies and ethics at GMIT and our regular cinema reviewer, wasn't quite so enthusiastic.
3: Yes, I come to this with a certain uh, underlying reservation, uh, which isn't to say that, <laughs> like you do to most films. <laughs> this is true. Uh, some some of the things that, that 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 come through here, I think, are to do really with what we might call the background or, or the heritage, maybe, uh, of of the film. Um, I mean, there isn't anyone uh, who I don't think who's listening who won't be aware uh, of the, the case of uh, of Brian Murphy uh, being killed outside Club Annabelle in Dublin in August 2000. Um, and, and that... Uh, That tragic event uh, really provides a very, very basic context for this particular film. In 2008, uh, an author called Kevin Power published a book called Bad Day in Black Rock. And what Richard did is director Lenny Abrahamsons and writer Malcolm Campbell's development of power 's
4: novel, yeah, but Lenny Abrahamson, I mean he does go to some lengths doesn 't he to distance the film from the actual killing of Murphy I mean he does uh, and and you know
3: up front, I want to acknowledge that I mean he says that uh, the film is inspired by power 's book and by the character of Richard, uh, and that you know he, he used it simply as a starting point. Uh, I mean, in another interview, he then goes on to say, uh, I didn't want to cause any more grief to any more people who had a real involvement in the original case. Now, I, as I say, I accept that at face value. He's clearly a filmmaker of integrity. But having said that, every review and every commentary piece on what Richard did mentions the killing of Brian Murphy. So in reality, uh, the the distancing that the, I think the makers hoped uh, to have ends up being somewhat moot.
4: Yeah, but every review says it's a fine film. And, uh, I mean, there is such a thing as artistic freedom, isn't there?
3: Yeah, and, and, and I think that's the, that's the key question here, and I think this is the thing that, that I, I think really warrants the exploration, is that there is a question about perhaps maybe the limits uh, of artistic freedom um, or, or maybe more in a more nuanced sense even what are the responsibilities... Uh, which come with artistic freedom. I'm wondering, is there a parallel maybe uh, around the notion of artistic freedom with perhaps the notion of freedom of speech? You can have freedom of speech until such point as you start saying untrue things. The flip side of artistic freedom is that the artist needs to recognise that they don't exist in their own moral universe. The American comedian Carol Burnett has an axiom, comedy is tragedy plus time. And I did wonder uh, around a film of this particular nature, uh, if perhaps then drama based on factual events is sensitivity plus time.
4: There's one scene in it which, which stands out in, in my mind and it's the scene, w- without giving too much away to people who haven't seen the film yet, uh, the, the scene where the, the boy who has been killed, the mother stands up at his funeral and it's it's a very harrowing scene where she berates everybody at the funeral and the people who didn't come forward and the people who were silent. You know, that was an outstanding scene, I thought, and beautifully acted, beautifully delivered. But... I get the impression it worried you a bit. Not so much that it worried me, but it's an immensely powerful moment. But it
3: seemed to me to recall very forcefully uh, and very perhaps emotively, going back to the original events around the killing of Brian Murphy, the reports of his mother, uh, of her statement on the witness stand, um, where she asked, where is my dead 19-year-old in all of this? And I was left with with an abiding sense of that uh, in the film as well. I think the only reason that, that legitimises uh, this kind of retelling within such a short time frame of the events is that an artistic work, in this case this film, is that it contributes some, some insight or some clarity or some revelation that not retelling the story or not alluding to a set of events would mean would be lost or missed. And the bottom line for me is, is that then the film simply doesn't provide the kind of insight or clarity or revelation that would have necessitated its making.
4: OK, I, I hear what you're saying and, and I'm going to bear that considerable caveat in mind. But as a film, is it worthwhile? Does it tell us something about ourselves? Does it tell us something about Ireland? Put, put it in that kind of context. Um, I have to be honest, Jerry.
3: I do find it difficult to get over the first caveat. Those considerations aside, if they can be put aside, I think one of the main thrusts of the film is to provide some kind of social portrait Uh, of a particular segment of society. And it is that kind of uh, Dublin four uh, milieu, uh, I think I've seen seen it referred to being about the cubs of the Celtic tiger. And insofar as it goes, uh, it's a very accurate and a very well acted uh, representation of of that context.
4: When I was watching that, Barry, there was a line from an old Maurice Chevalier song running through my mind all the time, I'm glad I'm not young anymore. (laughs) well yes i mean it's it 's infused with
3: with a sense of unconscious uh, privilege um casual sex and excessive alcohol consumption are part you know part and parcel of what goes on uh, and then and then layered over and through that then are this very uh, uh very strong set of social expectations that come uh from uh from from living in a, in a world where all sorts of doors are open to you that might not otherwise be open you know there's a, a number of instances uh, around um, the travel Tragedy that happens, uh, where we see people retreat into very self-serving um, and, and self-centered places. At a crucial moment in it, Richard's girlfriend says to him, "You really can only think of yourself." Uh, in the in the trailer, uh, we would have heard that at, at the beginning. Uh, you can hear him you know, in, in the moment uh, or in the reflection afterwards, he's saying, you know, I can't believe this is happening to me, where perhaps his concerns should be located elsewhere.
4: The, the father is an interesting character. I mean, apart from being a Max von look alike and alike <laughs> there's something, obviously, that happened when Richard was a child. The father had some problem. Was he, was he an alcoholic? Was it depression or whatever? Because he said that what he loved about Richard was that Whatever his problem was, Richard didn't let it drag him down.
3: There are these undertows going on within the family and within, the, within, as I say, within that milieu that that I really felt warranted being the focus of the film. And, I mean, that, that piece just that you've alluded to about the father um, does touch into the previous thing I'm talking about, about, about you know, high expectations, you know, and, and, and uh, social privilege and this kind of thing is, is that, you know, there, there was something there, you know, that the father was somehow flawed, um, uh, which created the necessity then that Richard, uh, with all his perfections, uh, that Richard therefore wouldn't be. Um, so so it, it's, as I say, it, it, the, the shape of the film uh, I think slightly undercuts against some of its more interesting aspects the other piece of the father's response uh, which I think is, is was potentially interesting, after the father finds out in fact that Richard has been the, the perpetrator in this killing he goes and talks off the record uh, behind the scenes uh, and we start to see there um, something seeping in around the edges uh, around a certain collusion uh, to protect the privileged
4: There's another thing too that, that the father says early in the film failure is not an option.
3: Yes, there's this nexus of of this handsome, intelligent, uh, sporting, uh, privileged guy, uh, and failure is not an option. And, and somewhere or other, we get the sense that the father did fail. So, so that generates some kind of pressure, some kind of um, drive that this young guy just one can't fail in some way, and two can't be seen to fail.
4: Is there an analogy here for Irish society at large? And what I'm thinking of is, you know, the the, the lies, the the cover up, to protect various. Institutions. One institution being the family, another institution being uh, the, the 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 club, the friendship that he has, another institution being the son himself, uh, and and that has resonances, of course, for us in this country. For evil to triumph, it is enough that good men do nothing. Yes,
3: you know this was in the film, but but again, it's it's accurate, but. I don't think necessarily particularly insightful. Uh, it there is a clear, I think, pointer to the fact that what goes on in this small context, uh, you know, uh, where wealth, wealth and connection if you like, class and the privilege it confers override morality and ethics. Uh, I think that's there. But again, there were more other interesting things in the film uh, that I w- I would have preferred that the film had focused on. So so I have a, s- a slight sense that 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 uh, as a film, it, it, slightly, it slightly squanders its opportunity.
0: Barry Macmillan having the last word on what Richard did. Before we go, a reminder that on Sunday night at 10 on RTE1 television, Blonidney Coffey's guest on The Moment of Truth is Liz McDermott, who resisted pressure to have an abortion, despite knowing that her foetus would be born without limbs and possibly with a severe mental impairment. Today, thanks to a specially adapted wheelchair, John is a happy, active nine-year-old schoolboy. And an idea for that Christmas gift list, the souvenir DVD of the 50th International Eucharistic Congress held in Dublin in June. You can find all the information on how to buy it on the website www www.iec2012.ie As always, we welcome your comments. Our phone number is 01 208 2039. Our email address, thegodslot at rte.ie and you can write is to got- us at thegodslot, Radio 1, Dublin 4. We'll be back next Friday evening at the same time. So good Shin, good Because
2: i got to have faith. <laughs>